I need to issue a quick correction. In both of these parts, I pronounce Corin Rainey's name as Corin. A listener pointed out that I am emphasizing the wrong syllable in my pronunciation. So I want to first thank Alice for alerting me to this issue and also apologize for my oversight. As I say the name literally hundreds of times, I am so sorry that I messed up something as important as her name. On August 15th, 2007, after being missing for eight days, Corinne Rainey's body was found in a shallow grave. The investigation included a deep look at all trace forensic evidence available. But her estranged husband, Lloyd, believed the police spent their time trying to make the evidence fit his guilt rather than spending it looking for the real killer. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. This is part two of a two-parter, so make sure you go back and listen to part one first. When we left off, Corinne Rainey had been missing for one week before her car was located, broken down in a neighborhood. The police followed an oil leak from the car into the nearby Kings Park. Doing a line search, they found a patch of freshly overturned soil with branches and leaves partially covering it. After digging, they found Corinne's body. Like most hastily dug graves, this one was not completely even, and Corinne's body was left with her head towards the lowest point, which was about three feet or one meter deep. The cause of death was not immediately obvious. Corinne was found with her shirt lifted up above the bottom of her bra and her belt undone. Not only was her pants zipper undone, it was missing multiple teeth, indicating that the person who unzipped it did so with some force. Though there were no obvious signs of a sexual assault, a sexual motive could not be ruled out with the state of her clothing. And neither could a robbery. While Corinne's earrings were still with her body, her gold watch was gone. And though her car was abandoned nearby, that was because of a mechanical issue. If someone had carjacked her, they may have hoped to get farther with the vehicle. After finding the body, the investigators had to take some care removing Corinne's body from the makeshift grave because the soil was pretty sandy and would cave in as they worked. Not wanting to lose any evidence, they were slow and careful about this process. After they moved the body completely out, they found a handkerchief where Corinne's head had been possibly accidentally dropped there by her killer. On autopsy, the medical examiner could not definitively identify the cause of death, except to say that the evidence was consistent with a compression of the neck, but the final determination was pending. The medical examiner wanted a neuropathology examination done because he did see some evidence of possible head trauma. 
However, because the body had been in the grave with the head lower than the rest of the body for several days, it was possible that these signs were caused by the post-mortem positioning. The neuropathologist would find that there was likely a non-life-threatening brain injury that may have rendered Corinne unconscious. Though experts would never end up fully agreeing on Corinne's cause of death, strangulation did seem to be a strong possibility. The investigators would say that there was very little in the early investigation that led them anywhere except to Lloyd Rainey, Corinne's estranged husband. Though he still lived in the family home, they were separated and headed towards divorce. That said, the argument could be made and would be made that they didn't find anything that pointed anywhere else because they didn't look for anything that pointed anywhere else. The police would be accused of having tunnel vision. On August 22nd, a week after Crin's body was found, the police showed up at the Rainey home in Como, which is outside of Perth, Australia, with a search warrant. Lloyd had received a call earlier that day from a reporter telling him that the house was about to be searched. So Lloyd called the police to ask about this, and he was told, no, there was not going to be a search. But that was a lie. The media had been tipped off to the search, but the police didn't want Lloyd to know it was happening ahead of time. It's obviously in no way appropriate for the media to be informed of the steps of an investigation like this. For this exact reason, they tipped off the person of interest. An investigation did not root out the source of the leak within the police department. The search of the house and yard was carried out, and this search and all subsequent searches found nothing, identifying the house definitively as a crime scene. On August 27th, the police got warrants to tap Lloyd's phones, and on the 28th, they consulted with a psychological profiler, and whatever they were told by him, the police believed it confirmed their suspicions of Lloyd. Then on the 29th, the police held a press conference in which Lloyd was named a person of interest, but they said that he was cooperating with the investigation. They said he was just one of a number of persons of interest. But a review of the case makes that statement a little bit uncertain. It really did not look like they were pursuing a large number of leads. Even if they didn't say it publicly, it did look like they were investigating Lloyd as a prime suspect. And it wasn't just because he was the estranged husband in an acrimonious divorce. They had another reason to suspect Lloyd that wasn't made public until late September, and that was a card that was found at King's Park. While Corinne was still missing, on August 11th, the Roberts family was walking through King's Park when the daughter noticed a small white card in the grass. On one side of the card, it said the Queen, and on the other side of the card, it said Lloyd Rainey. She had flipped the card over with a stick, so she did not touch it. 
Having heard about Corinne's disappearance in the media, the dad took a picture of the card where it was, and then they went home and called the police. From when they found the card until they brought the police to the spot was about two hours. This card turned out to be a place card from a dinner party from July 28th of that year. The guests had played a game of celebrity heads where you have a famous person on the card and you stick it to your forehead. You and everyone else talk and ask questions to see who could figure out what celebrity they are. They had used the place cards from the party to play the game and Lloyd had taken his home. Where the card was located was on the other side of the trail from where Corinne's body would later be found. It wasn't very close, but in relation to a large park like Kings Park, it really was. It seems likely that the place card had fallen out of Corinne's car at the time of the burial. But since Lloyd and Corinne were married and lived in the same house, it's possible the card had been left in the car previously, it doesn't necessarily prove that Lloyd was in the car that night. There were no fingerprints or DNA found on the place card, so there was no forensic link to anyone. This was circumstantial evidence, and that is really what they had, and they hoped to find some definitive forensic evidence. In the search of Corinne's car, they found blood, but it was all hers. They found 26 fingerprints in the car, full and partial, that have not been identified. 13 of them have been excluded from belonging to Lloyd. Lloyd's fingerprint was only found clearly in one spot in the car. His right middle fingerprint was lifted from a water bottle in the trunk of the vehicle. It isn't a position consistent with him having taken a drink from that water bottle. However, this hardly links him to the crime scene because he could have touched the bottle in the house and then Corinne or one of the girls picked it up and put it in the car. As we know, fingerprints can't be dated. As far as DNA goes, they did find partial male profiles on the button of the CD player on Corinne's wallet, on her purse, and on the driver's door. Except for the DNA on the purse, Lloyd was excluded from being a possible contributor. Also in the car were the boots Corinne had worn to her dance class the night she went missing. They had scuffs and scratches on them that were unlikely to have been there before that night. They were not the type of marks you get from line dancing, and Corinne had brand new boots at home. If these boots were in that condition, she would have worn her new ones. So the theory was that Corinne was dragged while wearing the boots. But the question was, where was she dragged? There were no drag marks at the burial site, and there were none at the house. And this leads to one of the biggest parts of this case, and that's the substances found on Corinne's clothing boots and in her nasal passages. 
I'm going to be honest, my brain sort of short-circuited a bit when I was getting into all of these details. I'm going to sum them up the best I can and really try not to leave out anything that's incredibly relevant. I always have to decide what information to include and exclude from my episodes, and I make the call based on what is most relevant to what we're talking about, not what fits a narrative. So I'm trying to include information that represents both sides fairly and is weighty enough that it's worth discussing. The investigators did microscopic comparisons between dirt at the house, at the park, and what was found on Corinne's boots and clothing. With regards to the boots, there was soil stuck to them inconsistent with what you would get through the normal wearing of boots. The community center where she was last seen and King's Park were excluded from being the sources of that dirt, but the rainy house in Como was not excluded. The boots also had grains of quartz and brick material, and the bricks at the house in Como were a possible source of the brick powder embedded in some of the damage on the boot heel. There were also fragments of dried paint and a green plastic substance on the boots that was also a match for what was outside the house. There was a white paint fragment that was not consistent with anything found at the house. Corinne's jeans, bra, and hair also had particles similar to what was found outside of her house. But there were also fibers found that didn't match anything from the house. There was also a fragment of green polyethylene plastic in Corinne's hand at the time of autopsy. While the color matched some of what was found in the soil sample from the rainy house, and a fragment from her boot, it was dissimilar in other ways, being smoother and larger than the other pieces. Additionally, two pods were found in Corinne's hair. They were from sweet gum trees. While sweet gums are common in Perth, there were not any near where she was buried in King's Park, yet there was a mature tree in the front yard of the rainy house, and there were some pods present on the brick paving in front of the house when the house was searched on August 22nd. In my view, this evidence really does point to Corinne arriving home that night, but that doesn't mean Lloyd did anything. It's possible she made it to the house, but never inside. But bringing the investigation close to home, only solidified for the investigators that Lloyd was their prime suspect. But they were running into some issues with the timeline. If Corinne left her dance class at 9.30, she would have arrived home around 9.45. Caitlin, their oldest daughter, arrived home an hour later. In one hour, Lloyd could not have killed Corinne, left the house without waking the younger daughter, Sarah, driven out to the park, buried her, ditched her car, and walked home in time to be there when Caitlin was dropped off. So they came up with a theory that has basically two parts, but has zero witnesses for any of them. 
This theory is that Corinne came home after Sarah was asleep. When she did, Lloyd killed her before Caitlin arrived home. But knowing that his other daughter was on her way home soon, Lloyd hid Corinne's body and moved her car so people would think she wasn't home yet. After Caitlin got home, Lloyd helped her with her homework as usual before she went to bed. When Caitlin was asleep, which would have been after midnight, Lloyd then loaded Corinne's body into her car and drove it out to Kings Park. After he carried her body into the woods, dug a grave, buried her, and drove off, puncturing the oil pan, he had to ditch the car. The park was across the river from Como, so there were really only two bridges he could have taken to get back. So it wasn't hard to guess which of the two paths he would most likely take. If Lloyd walked back to his house, it would take him roughly an hour and a half based on the police recreation. Assuming Lloyd was tired in the middle of the night after the physical exertion of moving a body and digging a grave, we can assume he wasn't exactly jogging home. If Lloyd got a ride, it wouldn't have taken him an hour and a half, but the police could find no evidence he did. They checked all of the taxi records from that night and found nothing. So could Lloyd have done all of that from the time Caitlin fell asleep, no earlier than a midnight, and 7.20 when he woke the girls up with himself already cleaned up, dressed, and the school uniforms ironed. And then Lloyd would have gone to work and gone about his day showing absolutely no signs he had stayed up all night trying to get away with a murder. The timeline seems possible, but not probable, and what the police really needed was evidence. They did have two witnesses who may have seen or heard Corinne's car who could pinpoint one point on the timeline when the car was dumped. Unfortunately, their times contradict each other. There was a woman who heard what may have been Corinne's damaged car being driven down the road. She noticed it because it was obviously struggling to gain power. She said this was around 2.30 a.m. If this was Corinne's car, 2.30 in the morning gave Lloyd plenty of time to walk home after dumping the car. But on the other side of things, it really didn't give him much time to have gotten out there, dug the grave, and buried Corinne after Caitlin went to sleep. It was possible, but it would have been tight. But then there is a conflicting witness. A man said he heard a car around 5.20 in the morning, making a loud-pitched whining sound as it passed his house. He looked out and saw the car speed by with black smoke coming from it. He went out around 6 a.m. and said he could still smell what he described as a hot engine and burned oil. Now, if this was Corinne's car, then Lloyd had plenty of time to have buried her body, but it would have been incredibly tight for him to get home, cleaned up, and dressed in time to wake up the girls. 
Both of these witnesses were credible. It's just a question of which one saw or heard Corinne's car and which one heard a different car, or if they had both heard a different car. It doesn't seem likely to me that a car in the condition Corinne's car was in would be speeding down the road. So I'm more on the fence about the 520 sighting being Corinne's car for that reason, but really, who knows? And honestly, that's about how this case goes. There will be one thing that points in one direction and then something else that points away from it. Because of that, the police didn't have enough evidence to arrest Lloyd in the early days of this investigation, or at least not arrest him for murder. Lloyd was arrested for something else. This has to do with something I mentioned in part one, and that is the recording equipment. The police found the cable that had been used to run up to the attic to the recorder. The investigation led them to Timothy Pearson, and fearing charges himself, Timothy was prepared to cooperate. On September 20th, Timothy called Lloyd on the phone while the police listened in. This was an attempt to get some evidence. Timothy said to Lloyd on this phone call that the major crime unit had left a business card asking him to call them. He wanted Lloyd's opinion of what he should do. Now, unfortunately, the recording isn't very clear. The only thing that can really be made out is the word computer. According to Timothy, Lloyd told him previously that if anyone asks about the work he was doing for Lloyd, he was to tell them that it was computer repairs. So it seems that is what they were leaning towards Lloyd saying here. Follow the script, say it was about computer repairs. So the police had this cable that used to run up to recording equipment, and they had Timothy Pearson's statement. What they didn't have were the CDs Timothy said he transferred the audio onto and then gave to Lloyd. So again, this is circumstantial evidence, but the smoking gun remained elusive. However, Lloyd was arrested and charged with illegally recording Corinne's phone calls. A press conference was held, and in that press conference, Lloyd was officially named a suspect in the murder of his wife. Then a full year after this press conference, and while the wiretapping case was still pending, in September of 2008, Lloyd filed a defamation lawsuit against the government for the statements made to the media naming him a suspect. This is something I have never in my life heard of someone doing. I have been doing true crime content for years at this point, and I've never heard of this. We've talked on Crime Lines before about the impact of being named a suspect and what that can do to someone's life. In this case, Lloyd was prepared to litigate those damages, and I find that fascinating. And it makes me wonder if the police would be less likely to use the media to put pressure on suspects if they knew they would be held accountable if they got it wrong. 
We know courts move slowly, and the defamation and wiretapping cases were still pending when, in December of 2010, Lloyd Rainey was arrested and charged with the murder of Corinne Rainey. At the time the police planned to arrest him, Lloyd had his daughter Sarah and a friend in the car, so the police followed him, waiting on him to drop them off. Then they blocked the road ahead of where Lloyd was and arrested him. They held him outside of his car while they searched it, even after he asked to sit in the police car. Lloyd believed they were doing this on purpose, as a public showing to possibly embarrass him, not unlike tipping the media off to the search of his home three years earlier. Lloyd was held but released on bail a couple of weeks after his arrest. You may wonder what they had after three years to make this arrest that they didn't have back in 2007 or 2008. And honestly, that's not too clear. Lloyd's side believed the defamation proceedings hanging over the state were at least part of the motivation of arresting him. They were being accused of defaming Lloyd by calling him the prime or only suspect, and the best way to prove that they didn't defame him was to prove that their statements were true. Regardless of the timing of this arrest, it was another year and a half before this case went to trial. And when it did in July 2012, Lloyd was not facing a jury of his peers, but rather a single judge. This was something interesting to me because in the U.S., every defendant has a right to a jury trial, but they can waive it and go before a judge, which we call a bench trial. But in Western Australia, this isn't a right that's completely in the control of the defendant. Lloyd had to apply for the judge-only trial and give the reasons why he wanted it. The jury trial isn't just seen as the right of the defendant in Western Australia, but important for the pursuit of justice. Lloyd basically said that due to the pretrial publicity, he didn't believe he would have a fair chance at trial by jury. And due to the expected length of this trial, 20 weeks, it would be an unfair burden to put on the jury members. The state opposed his motion, but it was granted in part because of the police naming Lloyd as the only suspect. This caused more media and public interest. It stirred up the conversation and the debate over his guilt for three more years. By the time this went to trial, it was almost five years. The court agreed that that did prejudice the public against Lloyd. They did have to bring in a judge from the Northern Territory due to Lloyd and Corinne's positions in the Western Australian legal community. And while Lloyd may not have felt that he had the general public looking favorably upon him, he did have a strong core group of friends who stood by him. Many of them were also Corinne's friends who believed in Lloyd's innocence and were upset that her killer looked like he was going to get away with it. 
both of Lloyd and Corinne's daughters, who were 10 and 13 at the time of the murder and 15 and 18 at the time of trial, stood by him. Corinne's family, however, did not stand by him, and that caused a rift between the girls and their grandfather, aunt, and cousins, which is always difficult to see. Now, because this was a judge trial, the judge, Justice Brian Martin, wrote a 350-plus page decision on what led to his verdict. And that was the major source for both of these episodes. Let's go ahead and sum up the state's case by covering the three main points, motive, means, and opportunity. For motive, the state argued that Lloyd had grown to hate Corinne as she threatened his future as a solicitor. She wanted to expose his gambling and get full custody of their children. With Corinne dead, he would avoid all the things he feared, according to the state. The state also presented evidence that Lloyd had a hard drive destroyed in October of 2007 after he was charged for the wiretapping-related offenses. They alleged that destroying the computer erased proof that Lloyd had listened to Corinne's phone calls, because had he listened to her phone calls, he would have known her divorce strategy was to expose everything about him, possibly ruining him professionally. The defense, of course, said that had nothing to do with why the hard drive was destroyed, but it seems with or without hearing those phone calls, Lloyd would have had a motive. As for means, that was a little harder to prove. Whoever killed and buried Corinne would have exerted a lot of physical effort to do so. Lloyd was not in shape, and he had a bad back. His daughters testified to it, and his older daughter, Caitlin, said that it was a constant through childhood. Things like piggyback rides were a no-go, and they even had a small back massage thing that they used to push into his back to help alleviate the pain. He got steroid injections at times to deal with it, and it was to the point that Lloyd pretty much had to have anyone help him do anything that required lifting anything even a little bit heavy. And if you remember, the evidence showed no signs of dragging to the burial site. It looked like someone had carried Corinne to that spot and dug the grave. So a man who couldn't give piggyback rides or move furniture due to his bad back, had supposedly carried the body of a 78-kilogram person, which is about 170 pounds, and dug a grave that was three feet deep at the deepest spot, and then walked 90 minutes home, and then walked around the next day like nothing had happened. And I didn't even mention that Lloyd only weighed 67 kilograms, which is 147 pounds. He was out of shape with a bad back, yet he lifted the body of someone who outweighed him. The state was arguing that was possible, while the defense was saying obviously not. So the next aspect is the opportunity. I mentioned already the theory of Corinne being killed while Sarah was sleeping, but before Caitlin got home, and then her body being moved later. 
And we talked about that timeline and the issues with it. But here's another issue. Lloyd didn't have a shovel. He owned two, but his neighbor had borrowed both of them and still had them at the time of the murder. The police tried to figure out where Lloyd got a third shovel, like did he purchase another one at some point, but they were never able to fill in this gap. But let's go ahead and say that Lloyd had a shovel somewhere and he used it to dig the grave. So Lloyd gets the shovel, puts in the car, and then he grabs Corinne's purse and wallet. No one at her boot scooting dance class had seen her with anything other than her keys, and she didn't usually take her purse with her, so there is reason to believe she left it at home. According to the state, Lloyd would have put these items in the car to make it look like Corinne came home after class and then left again. The defense to this would pretty obviously be that maybe Corinne forgot to bring the purse into the house when she arrived home earlier with her arms full of takeout. And the purse just so happened to be left in the car. But we're covering the state's case, so let's go ahead and say that Lloyd did put the purse in the car to make it look like Corinne left voluntarily. He also took her passport, which was not located in the house and never found anywhere else, to make it look like maybe she fled the country for some reason. Then, according to the state, Lloyd decided to take the body out to King's Park. To really understand this crime, the police did have a detective reenact what would have happened at King's Park by using a dummy. Getting the dummy out of the back of the car was shown to be difficult, and then the detective ended up dragging the dummy to the spot, whereas the evidence showed that Corinne was likely carried. He then dug a hole the same size as the grave to be sure that the soil hardness and composition was similar. This was done right next to the actual burial site. This process of digging, putting the dummy in the hole, filling the hole, and disguising it with leaves and branches took the detective 38 minutes. It is worth noting that the officer who did this reenactment was larger and stronger than Lloyd, and he didn't have back issues. So you have to imagine that if Lloyd did this, it would have taken him quite a bit longer. He would have struggled more, and he certainly would have had to take more breaks. Some of this reenactment was recorded, and the judge noted that it was obviously physically taxing. But the judge also noted that there were parts of this reenactment that were not filmed and that the omitted parts included some of the most difficult ones, like digging the hole and moving the dummy. But the after effects of these actions were still seen on the recording, and the detective was sweating, he was out of breath, and he looked exhausted. So the state said that after Lloyd had done all these things this detective had recreated, he drove away from the park and ended up broken down in a neighborhood. He walked away with the shovel in hand and ditched it as he walked the 90 minutes home without a single witness. Under this theory, the earliest Lloyd would have gotten home, if we are being generous to the state's position, was 4 a.m., He would have been sweaty and dirty, so he would have to shower, deal with his clothing, and then collapse into bed, only to be waking his girls up like normal around 7.20, 
and getting them off to school and himself to work. Lloyd then, after all of this physical exertion and exhaustion and with back pain, acted like everything was fine in the morning, slowly getting more anxious as the day went on until he was truly outwardly worried and stressed about Corinne. Under extreme conditions, he did a very natural rollout of emotion that day, so smoothly that it was almost like he really didn't know where Corinne was. The state did try to point to Lloyd's behavior that day as suspicious, saying things like how Lloyd didn't make eye contact with his father-in-law when they were at the police station reporting Corinne missing. But I think that could be explained by other things, like the fact that he was going through a contentious divorce with Ernest's daughter. That may be why he wasn't necessarily comfortable making full eye contact. I always say that we shouldn't judge people based on their reaction to extreme stress or trauma, since it can be expressed differently by different people. There is not one right way to act. But in this case, we actually have Lloyd acting the way you would expect. He was relaxed in the morning when he thought his wife was just being inconsiderate. And then he got more and more anxious as the day passed without word from her. It's all in line with what would be expected, yet it was still used against him in court because he didn't make eye contact with one person. I know I have a full rant in me about subjective evidence being allowed in court like this, but it's still an ill-formed rant. It needs a little bit more refinement before I go off speaking it into a microphone. But back to Lloyd's behavior that day. The state also pointed to the voicemails he left and the emails he sent, saying that they were self-serving. First of all, yes, they were self-serving, as were the three months of emails prior to that day. He was about to be in a custody battle, so they were both sending emails documenting each other's behavior. In that context, it makes sense that after leaving two voicemails, he put the same behaviors into writing in an email. That's what these two had been doing for months. Now, second, these messages and emails were not, in my view, necessarily self-serving enough. Lloyd chastised Corinne for coming home late and leaving early, which meant he was putting forth the idea that she made it home that night. If he killed her in the home, why was he making the assumption in writing that she made it home? Why not write the email chastising her for staying out all night? And that then moves the investigation away from the house. I did try to wrap my head around how the state could present these emails in their favor. Maybe they were thinking that Corinne never stayed out all night, so Lloyd needed to make it sound like he thought she got home, so it explains why he wasn't worried when she didn't, but I think it's still a stretch and that, all in all, Lloyd's behavior that day does not show his guilt, no matter how much the state tried to twist it otherwise. So really, the state's case proved motive They struggled to prove the means due to Lloyd's physical condition. And the opportunity, I mean, that's a pretty big maybe because it depends on a lot of factors. 
they don't have a ton of evidence for. But before we jump into the defense case, let's talk about a few more pieces of evidence the state presented. Two are from the burial site, one is a place card from the party, and the other is the handkerchief. The state was arguing that the place card was Lloyd's, and the only way it got to Kings Park was because he had it on him and he dropped it by accident. Based on where it was found, it was probably dropped as Corinne's body was being removed from the car and then it blew to where it was found. According to witnesses, Lloyd had talked about this place card a few times after the murder. He told one person that he felt like it may have been planted evidence. Another said Lloyd told him that he had driven Corinne's car to that dinner party and the card must have already been in the car, and that's how it ended up in the park. At trial, though, the defense conceded that Lloyd did not drive Corinne's car to the dinner party. While there is no evidence as to where the place card went after the party, it would be ridiculous to believe that it was found so close to Corinne's grave three days after she was killed, but had been dropped at some other time. If it was, it just showed that Lloyd was familiar with the park area ahead of time, which doesn't exactly look good for him. It's most reasonable to assume it was dropped there by accident when Corinne was buried. But I don't know why the assumption was that Lloyd had the card on him rather than that it was just in the car and it fell out. Anyone could have been driving the car at the time. Because to believe Lloyd had the card on him and accidentally dropped it would mean that the clothes he wore to a dinner party that was fancy enough to have pre-printed place cards were the same clothes he wore while he was doing difficult manual labor. And to me, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. You could say that maybe he had it in a different pocket in different clothes and then it got moved for some reason. And yeah, sure, that could have happened. But we are talking ripples of speculation here. You start at the center with Lloyd at the dinner party and leaving with the card. Where the card went from there is unknown, and discussing all the possibilities takes us out on these ripples of speculation, farther and farther from the known evidence. And once you get too far from that center, it's just guesswork. And while we're on the topic of these ripples of speculation, let's get into the handkerchief found buried with Corinne. It was a men's handkerchief, and it was from the brand Stanley Adams. It had a blue and yellow border edge work. After it was found, the family was asked if Corinne carried a handkerchief. The girl said no, but Lloyd said occasionally she did. He went into her room and pulled out all of the ones she had, and they were all noted to be feminine-styled, unlike the one in the grave. And none of them were that Stanley Adams brand. None of the Stanley Adams brand ones were found in Lloyd's things either. So how are they going to tie this piece of evidence to Lloyd. It goes back to April 2007, four months before the murder. Lloyd and Corinne went to Bali. While there, Corinne made two purchases using her credit card at a store that was the exclusive retailer 
of Stanley Adams brand clothing. Now, there was no itemized receipt found at the home or at the store of the purchase. They don't know what Corinne bought, just that she bought things there twice, and that same store sold this brand of handkerchiefs. So here's the thing. This would be a lot more compelling to me if this handkerchief was found at a crime scene in the U.S. or maybe the U.K., but Perth to Bali is a four-hour flight. Australians love Bali. In 2019, pre-pandemic obviously, 1.2 million Australians went to Bali on vacation. Given how common tourism to Bali is, I really would have liked to see more of a direct link between Lloyd and this handkerchief than just they went to Bali and shopped at a store there. The state had so many pieces of evidence like this, like the card and the handkerchief, that had just enough of a gap between them and Lloyd to not feel satisfactory as evidence. Another thing similar to this was a jacket found on Corinne's bed. The state said it showed that Corinne had made it home that night and inside the house where she took off her jacket and laid it on her bed. But this jacket was a business jacket, not the sort of thing she would have worn out dancing. And the only person at dance class who specifically saw Corinne come in said she didn't remember her wearing a jacket. It seems much more likely the jacket was put there when Corinne had gotten home from work. Another thing was a cup of coffee in her bathroom. If Corinne knew she and Lloyd might be up late talking, maybe she would have had a cup of coffee at 9.45 at night. And her body was found with caffeine in her system. On the other hand, maybe she drank it before dance class, or maybe it was from the morning and then she had a caffeinated soda that night. There really is just no way of knowing. It's all these pieces that get you towards a resolution, but then there's this gap where they're not as conclusive as we want to see when something is going to trial. So let's get on to the defense. They argued that the police had tunnel vision. We talked about that. They zeroed in on Lloyd immediately while Corinne was still a missing person. The defense also tried to argue a lot of the forensic evidence in their favor, like the brick dust and soil samples on her clothes and boots. They pointed out that all it did was link Corinne to the outside of her house, and it did not rule out that she was attacked as she got out of her car. But probably the biggest piece of forensic evidence for the defense's case was the pollen in Corinne's nose. A big part of the state's case was that Lloyd killed Corinne at the house and left her body somewhere for hours while he got Caitlin off to bed and could transport the body elsewhere. However, the pollen found in her nasal passages was consistent with what is found in Kings Park and had no similarity to the pollen from her home in Como. According to expert testimony, if Corinne had been killed at home and was dead at the time she was taken to the park, the pollen present would have been consistent with her home. And certainly not King's Park, since she would not have been breathing. 
This suggests that the last breaths of Corinne Rainey were taken at the park. The state did try to challenge this. Could it have been contamination or maybe moving her body and burying it caused the pollen to go into her nose? And then, of course, there's the theory that Lloyd hadn't killed her, but he did render her unconscious before then taking her to King's Park. So there was more back and forth over the blow to her head. There were no drugs or poison or alcohol in her system to indicate she was incapacitated that way. But if there was a blow to Corinne's head hard enough to render her unconscious for hours, there's really no clear evidence of that. This was another part of the trial that was kind of a battle of the experts. The defense said that their theory of the crime was that Corinne was likely abducted from outside of the house and then killed in her car closer to Kings Park than her house. They said there was evidence in her car that supported this. For one thing, there was blood in the back seat that was Corinne's, and they said that the blood indicated Corinne was bleeding, and people stop bleeding when their hearts stop pumping. There was more expert testimony over how much blood this was, the source of the blood, and all of that, but again, we're on the defense's theory. Just assume the state has an opposing expert with an opposing view. Just assume that throughout this entire thing. The defense also pointed to a footprint on the console, but in the back, like it came from someone in the back seat. One of Corinne's contact lenses was also found in the back seat. A piece of fabric from her shirt was in the car. And then there were the random unidentified fingerprints and male DNA in the car, specifically on the driver's door, the CD button, and on her wallet. To them, these were all signs that Corinne was attacked in the backseat of the car. And the defense even offered possible alternative suspects in Alan Locko and Ivan Eads, two cousins who both have convictions of violent crimes against women and children. Both lived in Como at the time of Corinne's murder, so close, in fact, that Ivan Eads' DNA was found on a cigarette butt near the sidewalk outside of the rainy home. And phone records showed that Alan Locko was using a phone booth near the rainy home on the day of the disappearance. Locko also had worked at King's Park and was familiar with it. But proximity was not all the defense had. The day after Corinne's body was found, Alan Locko was pulled over and sand was found in his trunk, not dissimilar from the soil composition at King's Park. Then a year into the investigation, the police found Locko living in Sydney. With him, they found a planner page from August 2007 that had a map of King's Park as well as the floor plans of the court where Corinne worked. The defense argued that the police did not pursue these suspects thoroughly, ruling them out prematurely because they had just assumed Lloyd did it. The defense hoped that the holes in the state's case and the alternative suspects would add up to reasonable doubt for Justice Brian Martin. It was on November 1st, 2012, that Justice Martin returned his verdict of not guilty, writing that he was not satisfied that Lloyd Rainey had killed Corinne Rainey. 
Unlike a jury's decision, where we don't usually hear the reasoning behind it, the judge did write out a full written decision on how he came to this conclusion. He did criticize some actions of the police in some ways that were pretty significant. In at least two instances, the police allegedly pressured a person to give the answer they wanted. In one case, it was a witness who they threatened would be accused in the crime. And in the other instance, they pressured the medical examiner to change his report about the sweet gum pods. Now, these seed pods were an issue. There are sweet gums all over Perth, but notably, there were none in the area of the burial, and there was a large one at the family home. They seemed to tie the attack on Corinne to her house. But when the pathologist did the initial autopsy, including examining Corinne's head and hair, he did not find them. He didn't find them until the next day. Two were apparently found in her hair, and then a while later, one was found in the body bag. Now, the police report on this and the pathologist report didn't match, and they pressured him to change his report to match the investigator's report. On cross-examination, he testified that in his 20-plus years working with the police, he had never experienced unease with them like he did in this case. The defense had accused the police of planting these seed pods, but the judge did not go so far as to accuse them of that, but he did say it was inappropriate that they intervened in the pathologist's report. Well, Justice Martin said that some of the police actions were inappropriate and some reprehensible, he did not find that the police failed to pursue other investigative leads. And also that the bulk of the state's case did not rely on the officer's investigation and actions, but rather on the forensic evidence. So here's what Justice Martin said led to his verdict. First, he wrote that he does believe the attack occurred at or near the home, but that alone doesn't mean Lloyd did it. He noted that a large part of the state's case was that it was highly unlikely Corinne would be attacked by a stranger outside of her home. And statistically, they are right. But unlikely doesn't mean it couldn't have happened. And just because the alternative theory has not been proven by the defense doesn't lessen the state's burden to prove Lloyd did do it. He also said he found some of the evidence contradicted the state's case directly, like the pollen in Corinne's nasal passages, showing that she was likely breathing while in King's Park. Justice Martin then wrote that, other than the place card, he found the evidence the state presented as neutral. It didn't include or exclude Lloyd as a suspect. The place card did raise his suspicions, but suspicion is not the bar the state had to meet. The thing I found most interesting in this verdict was the judge's own possible alternative scenario. We know there was dirt and brick dust in Corinne's boots, which were damaged, and on her clothing, which had also been messed with. But there were no signs of dragging at the house or at the park. So Justice Martin wrote that if Corinne was attacked in a sexually motivated attack, she may have been pulled to the ground. 
That may also explain some of her injuries. As she struggled, the damage done to her boots would have been consistent with her kicking and resisting. It would explain the dirt found on her clothing, the damage to her clothing, and even seed pods in her hair. The injuries to her body are consistent with this, and the head injury could have been from striking her head on the ground. Justice Martin found this as a reasonable alternative explanation that fit with the evidence. And if you have a reasonable alternative explanation that fits with the evidence, you have reasonable doubt. Lloyd Rainey was acquitted. And in another way, the U.S. courts and the Australian courts differ was that the prosecutors were able to appeal this verdict. They did so about 10 months later, saying that Justice Martin didn't take the case as a whole, but rather picked it apart piece by piece. This appeal failed. The three-judge panel said that Justice Martin had carefully and correctly evaluated the case. Afterwards, Lloyd addressed the media, saying that the person who was responsible for Corinne's death was still out there and he wanted them caught. Now, Corinne's family felt differently. Her sister and father both believed in Lloyd's guilt, and her sister said she was devastated. But this would not be the end of the legal proceedings. Lloyd still had the wiretapping-related charges, which went to trial in 2015. Timothy Pearson, the person who installed the listening device, had already pleaded guilty. The trial lasted two weeks when the judge ruled, without the case even getting to the jury, that Lloyd Rainey was to be acquitted due to the evidence being flawed. The directed verdict was because the time periods the state contended Lloyd had intercepted his wife's conversations were not consistent with the evidence. One of the time frames was when Corinne and the girls weren't even in town, and the other was at a time Timothy Pearson testified the digital recorder had been removed. And that's why it was a little awkward in part one of the series to talk about the wiretapping charges. We have Timothy Pearson guilty of it, and then we have Lloyd Rainey not guilty. It's so much easier to talk about crimes as facts when we have consistent outcomes at trial. Also in 2015, a cold case review was taken in Corinne's case, but after a year, they closed it, saying they had insufficient evidence to charge anyone. Lloyd said the problem was that it wasn't an independent review, and he continued to ask the police to bring in an outside team to reevaluate it. And the next court battle was the defamation case against the police for calling him the prime and only suspect in Corinne's murder. Lloyd won this in December 2017. This ruling by Justice John Cheney was 332 pages. But the bottom line was that the judge found the police did not have sufficient reason to call Lloyd the prime suspect when they did, and that by doing so, they damaged his reputation. Lloyd had asked for $10 million in damages, saying that his income was impacted over the full 10 years from the murder until the defamation trial. But the judge found that the arrest and criminal trial were what affected him from the years 2010 until 2017. 
so he only awarded damages from when the statement was made in 2007 until Lloyd's arrest in 2010. In total, Lloyd was awarded $2.62 million, one of the largest defamation awards in Australian history. Then in 2020, Lloyd sued again for defamation. This time it was Mark Reynolds, a forensic investigator. At a 2014 professional forum, Mark Reynolds said, quote, I was the chief supervising officer on the case, and there's no need for a cold case review. The offender was identified, end quote. Lloyd sued for defamation for Mark saying that he was the person who did this. And all of the news on this defamation trial ends abruptly on the last day of trial, July 22nd, 2020. If there was a ruling, I think it would have hit the news. So it sounds like there was possibly a settlement, but that's not been published anywhere I can find. In this case, it sounds like Lloyd won again and again, first the murder trial, then the wiretapping trial, and finally the defamation case. But he still lives under this cloud of suspicion, and I suspect he always will. I dipped my toe into the comment sections of some of the places online where this case had been discussed, and I read that suspicion myself. But for people who seem pretty convinced Lloyd did it, none have, in my opinion, come up with a scenario that fits the evidence better than what the judge put in his decision. And I'm not just saying that because Lloyd has sued people for defamation for saying otherwise. I read the judge's entire verdict, and I just don't see how Lloyd could have done this, and certainly not within any scenario the state came up with. And that means Corinne's killer is out there. If they have not used up all of the DNA from her car, our technology in 2022 is much better than in 2007 and 2010, especially when we're talking about smaller samples. I would like to see another attempt at identifying some of the sources of that DNA. I'm not sure the police are looking to reopen this case at this time, but that would be a path forward. As for where the situation stands now, Caitlin and Sarah Rainey both studied law abroad. Lloyd Rainey, however, is no longer able to practice law himself in Australia. He was struck off the role of practitioners when the Western Australian Supreme Court found that he did secretly record Corinne and then gave misleading testimony about it in court. Lloyd did lodge an appeal to increase the payout in his defamation case against the police, which was rejected in April 2022. Corinne's daughters, along with Lloyd, have repeatedly stated to the media that they want an independent cold case review and Corinne's killer identified. So far, they are having to live without this chapter being closed. If you have any information, you can call in tips anonymously at 1-800-333-000. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. 
Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. 